Welcome to The Book Report, the podcast where we do book reports on books we haven't read since the last time we did book reports. My name is Natalie, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Dwin, and my pronouns are also she, her. Remember the Animorphs? Neither do we. Uh, this week, we are reading The Underground by K. Applegate, which is written in 1998. Do you remember what happened last time? Okay, last time we had uh, Maddie and Lucy on, and we learned mm-hmm. about rhino poop. Yes, we did. We that also had uh, Visser 3's twin. Yes, that's right. Visser 3's twin, who is a cannibal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I gotta tell you, this book, this series, conti- like, it continues to escalate, is I it guess does. what I would say. Uh, wilder and wilder things happen, and I did not expect it to escalate at this speed. Well, speaking of escalation, I guess we have a content note for today. I think a lot of our books have some pretty dark themes, but this in particular, we're going to be talking about addiction and suicide and just mental health stuff in general. Um, There's a brief um, conversation about homelessness that we'll definitely be having. So if any of those things are a trigger for you, um, this is just kind of the theme of this whole book. And so there's no timestamp. It's just, just skip it. Um, Yeah. But that's just giving you all a heads up that this is what this book is about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. It's not great. It's really intense. I definitely have a lot of notes about, like, who is this book for? What is the who age group? Is, I agree wholeheartedly, and I'm just going to lead off. Like, I know we still have to read your book report, but I just want to say I, I strongly do not approve of the jovial nature in which they discuss addiction. Yeah, the addiction stuff is really tough, and I, I know we have a lot of notes about what we're going to talk about for it, but... uh it's it's tough, and it was not what I expected when I started reading this book. Uh, me neither. Let's read your book report. All right. Well, I to, to defend myself preemptively, um, I wrote this late last night, uh, panicked about getting it done in time. So okay, the quality may be, you know, I'm sure it'll be great. Okay, here we go. This week we read *The Underground*, a book narrated by Rachel. In the beginning of this book, Rachel and the rest of the gang decide to go in various bird morphs to what I assume is the opening of a planet Hollywood. They see lots of various 90s celebrities and are having a great time. Unfortunately, their day is ruined when they see a man throw a chair out of a window of a tall building and then jump out. They decide to risk being seen by everyone at the planet Hollywood and rescue the man in their bird forms. Unfortunately, he goes into the river and Rachel ends up turning into a dolphin to rescue him. Arnold Schwarzenegger gets all the credit. A few days later, Rachel finds out her mom is the lawyer for the man who she rescued. It turns out his family is trying to declare him incompetent because he thinks there's a yerk in his head. The Animorphs decide to investigate by breaking into the mental health facility where the man is living. After breaking in by turning first into seagulls, then into cockroaches, Rachel demorphs in a bathroom and asks another patient to bring the man, George, to talk to her. She and George talk about what he is experiencing. As it turns out, George does have a yerk in his head, but the yerk has become addicted to instant oatmeal and as a consequence seems to have lost all control and coherency. The morphing gang regroup and try to decide what to do with this information. They discuss getting all yerks to eat oatmeal but are concerned about the consequences of to their controllers and about the ethics of intentionally getting someone addicted. They end up deciding to go straight to the source and dump oatmeal into the yerk pool. The first attempt to sneak into the pool goes wrong when the secret McDonald's entrance has weapons to keep out non-controllers, so they instead dig into the pool by turning into moles. Instead of getting into the pool, they end up in a cave full of bats. 
After acquiring bat morphs, they find a secret passage into the Yerk pool, but are instantly detected by flying bots. Not bats, bots. Rachel falls into the pool when her wing is shot off. To escape, she turns into an ant and climbs onto a controller to get away from the pool. After jumping off the controller, she finds her way into a storeroom, demorphs, and steals a Dracon beam. Luckily, a human controller comes by, so she shoots the controller and steals her clothes so she can pretend to be a controller. The rest of the gang has been captured, aside from Cassie and Marco, so after reuniting, they have to rescue the rest of the Animorphs and evade capture by Visser 3, who has just shown up. Using their usual battle morphs, they burst into the contraband shed with the oatmeal, then throw the barrels into the pool and use them to demand Visser 3 release their friends. When he says no, Rachel throws him in the pool, then threatens to blow up the barrels. Visser 3 releases the gang and they escape, stopping once to blow up the barrels. On her way home, Rachel breaks George out of the mental health facility. She ends the book letting the reader know that he is now homeless, so if you see him, give him some money. <sighs> I gotta say, while I don't object to this part of your book report, I do object to the world that you and I are currently in, in which we read and write things like this sentence. The first attempt to sneak into the pool goes wrong when the secret McDonald's entrance has weapons to keep out non-controllers, so they instead dig into the pool by turning into moles. If we didn't know what we knew about this book, <laughs> that sentence would make no sense. Like, I know all those words individually, but together, no fucking idea. Like, what are we doing? Uh, Natalie, we chose this for ourselves. No one forced us to do this. <laughs> We've done this to ourselves. Uh, I Okay, so here's my take on your book report. I think there are some things which you described in a way that I think is actually incorrect. And I think it's important because I think Rachel's mom is not a lawyer for George. I think she's a lawyer for George's family. And Rachel's oh, is mom is like family? actively working on getting him committed against his will. Ah, okay. I missed and that. And I thought then. that was wild. I, that's, that's how I interpreted her thing, um, which had like a whole other ethical thing to it. Um, but overall, I thought this was a great book report. Very factually accurate. Very, very good. Um, but that one inaccuracy, I will give it like an A minus. Wow. I'm okay um, with that. Yeah, no, it's totally good. Great job. Um, just so you know, I just checked the book. Yeah, and it what did said, she say? uh, no, the man he rescued. Anyway, guess what? I'm his lawyer. His family says he's incompetent. Interesting. So she is the lawyer for George. So I was correct. You were wrong. You were, you were correct. We can come back to this. But based on that conversation they have, I really thought she was like also saying, I'm trying to get him committed. Um, it kind of sounds like from the conversation that maybe her mom thinks that he should be. Well, no, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Well, anyway, we can get into it. <sighs> can we start with my one miscellaneous comment that I put in here that I was really happy about? Yes. You'll all recall that in our last Rachel book, she talked about her house being destroyed and how in two weeks she was going to have a full-blown house again. <laughs> but shout out to Rachel's still broken house in here. And I freaking loved that. I highlighted the heck out of it. I circled it even. Uh, my still not completely fixed house. Yes. I also I um, highlighted that and I, I wrote realism. <laughs> uh, I love the realism. And I, I also read into that all of her hopes and dreams crushed thinking she'd yes. have her house back to normal in two weeks. I also like that when she's talking about her, her house falling apart, she says the construction had been pretty shoddy. Okay, maybe. Okay, Rachel. But Rachel, what happened was not that the construction was bad. It was, and, and she does admit that she turned into an elephant, but also she said the construction was shoddy. I'm like, no, most houses are not designed 
for an elephant. elephant on the second floor. Maybe the yes. first floor, but not the second floor. No. No. Uh, Very anyway. good. I, I loved that shout out. I thought that led some, you know, uh, good, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? When um, continuation, you know, like the plot continues mm-hmm. across all the books. It's great. I love it. Okay. Yeah. Um, why don't we just start with, I'm just going to say it this way. Why don't we just start with the suicide attempt? Because it does, it, it is the entire premise of this book. It's the first thing that happens. Yes. Um, and it's wild. It really okay. So it's wild in a lot of ways. One, that it is a suicide attempt right at the beginning of this children's book. In a children's um, book. But also, okay, I am not saying they made a bad choice to save him, um, but I do think it is an interesting choice because it sounds like there's a whole like a show, a whole bunch of stuff happening, and towns a lot of people around. Yeah, they're and like in it, an amphitheater. It was unclear. It sounded like they were in the street almost. Oh. What? Anyway, so they're at this big thing, right? There's a ton of people. Uh, maybe right at the same thing. But, like, there are a ton of people. And even if they're all inside of an amphitheater and this is outside of the amphitheater, there's still going to be people, like, outside, right? Like, people yeah. who, are, who didn't get in. Or, like, I've been to um, many a concert where there are people hanging out outside who are, like, selling food. Like, there's going to be a lot of, like... Yeah vendors or whatever who are hanging out outside even if they're all inside somewhere so for sure someone would see this team of birds is <laughs> six mitch mass mitch mismatched mismatched birds grabbing a human out of midair throwing him into a river then diving themselves into the river and not coming back up again and even tobias at the beginning admitted that even the fact that they hang out at all um means that they are just kind of yeah like it doesn't any bird watcher would see them and be like what the fuck um but this is especially uh wild i agree with you i'm not saying they should not have saved someone who's about to die but i do think that was an odd choice and the weird twist at the end where like they save him and the person who they like save him from drowning from getting stuck in the bottom of the river and then he like floats up to the top and the person that pulls him out of the water is Arnold Schwarzenegger who does CPR and like that's the twist of the story and I'm like what huh it's really strange um it like I just spent a lot of trying to figure out okay so there are rivers their their city that they live in is on a coast Yes. And there are rivers, so I guess it's salt water enough for the dolphin to be okay. Because my understanding is that salt water. Animals... I think they have salt water dolphins. There are freshwater dolphins, but they right, have salt water dolphin morphs. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess it's salt watery enough in the river that they had no problem, and also it was deep enough in the river. I can't. Rivers don't think of being that. I mean, they're they're not shallow, but they're not that deep that she could morph and no one would see I don't her. Know. Yeah, it, it's just, it makes no sense. And then when they're talking afterward, they're like debriefing afterward. And their take is like, we got to make no loose ends. We got to make sure this guy doesn't talk. Tell everyone that he was saved by a bunch of birds. That's too mm-hmm. suspicious. Um, they're like ready to go take him out, to be honest. They're like, we've got to hunt this guy down. Keep an ear to the yeah. ground. See if you can find who he is. Yeah. Which it's is weird. And Rachel's reaction when they're talking about him is so strange um it's it's actually i thought it was an interesting moment because it it um i'll just read this part cassie's basically telling rachel like you saved him shouldn't you know what his name is like shouldn't you care about him at all 
And she said, now that she mentioned it, I did feel, whoops, I did feel like maybe I should know the man's name. On the other hand, hey, wait a minute, this guy isn't anything to me, I said. It's not like I'm responsible for him. And I thought that was a really interesting moment because it was her being like, I don't feel anything right now. Should yeah. I? Uh-oh. I, I know we say it a lot, but uh, it does seem like a trauma response. If you're questioning, should I be feeling something? It seems like yes, and uh, uh-oh, I don't feel anything. That's a good sign that you should go talk to a therapist. Yeah. Uh, it definitely seems like there's something going on there that she needs to figure out. Yeah. I, anyway, I thought that was really interesting moment that maybe it wasn't the intention like maybe we're reading too much into it by being like it's Rachel's trauma but still I think it's like I no I think it's supposed to be her trauma because I don't know what else would explain it to me yeah Uh, and it's a running theme through the book and it has no solution and we don't really address it which makes me think it's a trauma thing that she is normalizing like she's like that's just how it is yeah I just don't feel things there was a supportive adult in her life that supportive adult would say to her like that's not normal. Like, it's not normal that you are not feeling anything. Yeah. Like, it's one yeah. thing to be like, I'm having a bad day, but like, to be like, I just don't feel anything about any of this at all. Pretty much. Yeah. Thanks. And then also, I'll just like chime in on this now, too. Like, throughout the book, she uh, continually takes these like really, really risky moves. But I think at this point, it's becoming less like she's brave and she wants to do stuff and more. Now it's a liability. Yeah. And I actually, and I, I, I know I have a note for about, about it somewhere in our notes, but it seems like this is a running theme in the book because a lot of the things that I think in the earlier books made them like, that's just who they are. Like Marco's funny and Jake's kind of like leadery are now becoming liabilities to them, to all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, They're like forcing themselves to committing to their like stated role that they can't be flexible in any other way. And, like, Rachel talks several times in this book about, like, that's her job. Her job is to be fearless. And, like, this is her role to play. And she doesn't want to do this, but she has to. And we heard the exact same thing from Marco when he was feeling like he had to perform being funny. Um, And we heard it, too, from Jake in the last book where he was feeling like he had to perform being a leader. And with all three of these uh, recent examples, they're feeling pushed to perform a thing. And then... That like the PC part of it actually made it kind of worse for me. Like I that they exactly. were talking about like the PC stuff. I was like, uh, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to realize people probably don't want to be called things like that. Like it's not about a PC thing. It's just no one wants to be called that kind of stuff. It's not fun to be called names. There's two ways to look at this, right? There's the context of like a child reading this book in the '90s and like uh, not a great teaching moment of being like ignore it when people say politically mm-hmm. correct is unfunny because it's more fun to be funny so there's that which is not great but then there's in the context of this book itself like continuing to show the animorphs having a complete lack of empathy for people that are not directly involved in their conflict with the yerks yeah yeah i it's it's really strange it kind of feels, this something that feels like weird writing to me, because <clears throat> while I do think the animals tend to lack some empathy for people outside of their group, and I know I say trauma all the time, but I do think it's a trauma thing, in part, not in whole, I think in part. I, I think it's a teenager thing. But I, well, and that's the other thing, I think it's a teenager thing, and I think part of it is they are maybe even mildly less empathetic than I would expect a standard teen to be, because I think the, the writer expects teens to be. Because they're literally just watching people die every day. Yeah, well, I, I also just mean, like, I think I think people, when they write teens, tend to heighten those, like, typical teen things. Oh, um, I see. Mm-hmm. And so some of I feel like, and I see it in these books, but I've also seen it in other books by other writers who write teens. But, like, things like being self-centered get sort of heightened a little bit. Mm. 
because it's it, because if you're an adult, it is hard to remember what it is like to be a teen, just because that is in your past. And like, sure is. It in some ways it feels so ridiculous because you're like, oh, that seemed like at the time all these things so important to me, and now they don't. It's hard to remember like when you are a teen, they actually do feel important. Like it's hard to have that sense of reality. Writing teens. Yeah, but imagine. how does that apply to empathy? I mean, I think part of it is a trauma thing, but I also think some of it is like people think like teens are so self-centered they can't be that empathetic. I think it gets heightened a little more than it maybe actually is. Mm, I see. Just That's slightly too much. I and mean, it kind of feels like the thing that people write teens like that. Dwayne, here's the thing. We are right here, right now, what we're doing, this is an extended literature class. And as someone who A, studied literature and B, momentarily taught literature, let me tell you, authors don't mean shit when they're writing anything. That's true. And we are totally making stuff up right now. We're doing a close reading of absolutely nothing. You know what she probably intended by this? Huh. The word nut's pretty funny. How many times can I write the word nut? That's probably uh, what she was really thinking. I really can't wait till we get to a place where we have read far enough where we can read interviews with her because I really, I want to learn more about her and her writing and like all of this stuff because I have a lot of questions, but I'm too afraid to read interviews. I also have a lot of questions about how, because wasn't this a collaboration between her and her husband? No. So what I've read says basically that she wrote it up to the 25th book that's like all her and then okay. they got on um ghostwriters i think her husband might have been involved at some point in there is maybe what i read i'll have oh. to look into it more but it sounds like up until the 25th book at least it was all her here's the other thing i wonder uh Dwayne, have you ever I, like i mean i know for fun but like have you ever done much like fiction writing yourself like tried to write short stories or like uh, maybe an extended long story thing um natalie i took creative writing in high school yeah of course i have okay i mean like outside of that <laughs> yeah yeah. Okay. Do you, you know that experience when you're writing a fictional story where uh, you're no longer in charge anymore mm-hmm. and it seems like the characters are doing what they want and you're like, stop, stop, stop. I did, it's not where I wanted the story to go. And I wonder how much of that is this? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, this is another thing I'd love to read interviews because I, I would bet someone has asked her this, these questions before about like how much are like the characters in control. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you've never written before and you were wondering what I was just referencing, I really can't explain that sensation in any other way. And you just need to try writing something and see what happens to your characters. They just mm-hmm. die. And you're like, how? That's not what I meant. It's wild. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. this leads us to learning about the addiction problem that the Yerks have. Yes. She gets this information from George that I, I was like, what? how why is this the plot that we're going down so like what she learns from george is that the yerks when when the animorphs destroyed the cadrona ray mm-hmm. and visor three was like y'all can't have the yerk pool anymore i'm reserving this only for the best yerks the people who or the yerks who were left behind and did not have a food source had to figure something else out and right. for whatever reason one of them ate some instant oatmeal in their controller body and figured out, oh, I don't need the Cadrona Ray if I eat this instant oatmeal. But also, it has a side effect that they get addicted to it. And they don't want anything other than the oatmeal. And it drives them insane after some time. Okay, quick question. And maybe a question we can't know the answer to. But how is it possible? Birks have been on Earth for at least two years, possibly longer. Probably longer. But let's say, let's say three years. And they have hundreds of controllers, maybe thousands. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. is it possible that out of all of those people, not one person ever before now ate instant oatmeal. Well, I feel like they try to get at that by saying it's very specifically the instant oatmeal that is maple and ginger flavored only. 
All other kinds of oatmeal does not apply. Only instant maple ginger. I'm just saying it seems unlikely that nobody had ever had it before ever. Second question I have. Someone told us a theory. I don't remember which of our guests, but somebody had a theory that was like, the Animorphs world is a parallel universe. And, you know, this is not our Earth. It's a different Earth. Mm-hmm. We don't have a maple ginger flavored oatmeal. I know. I was thinking, like, that's a strange flavor that I've never heard of. I've never had that. There's maple and apple. There's maple and brown sugar. Maple yeah. and ginger sounds a little too sweet and spicy for oatmeal. I don't know. That doesn't sound great. Maybe. I'm, Actually, I'm that's keep... okay. I'd eat that in a cookie now that I think about it. I'd probably I, eat it in an oatmeal. I don't care for maple flavored things, so I would not eat it. But I also don't. You? But I also don't like oatmeal, really. Oh, I don't either. It's a texture thing. So to me, this oh, all sounds yeah. disgusting. I, I just keep thinking about how much I don't understand this whole plot. Um, yeah. Well, and, and like the end result of this addiction is really bad, but it's, it's okay. Well, let me say what it is first, which is that, so the Yerk quote unquote loses their mind. Like they lose all coherency mm-hmm. and they just, they can't control the body anymore, but they also can't leave the controller and they will basically live forever without the Cadrona Ray. Like they, they have no need for the Cadrona Ray. They just exist in their controller, but they have no control. But how, how much oatmeal, this is a thing they don't specify, I don't think. Maybe they did. Uh, how much oatmeal do they have to have before they are addicted and, and they live forever? Because they don't specify, but it's not the first time. Yeah, because we, we had at least one person who like, was sneaking in oatmeal and they caught her yeah. uh, and took it away. Is it the first bite you're addicted and then you have to have several bowls and now you live forever? Like, That's like the implication, but that makes no sense. So no. I don't know. We don't learn much. It's very strange, um, and it's problematic for the Yurks because while they have a lot of control over, they, like, they seem to have a fair amount of control over other Yurks, like, the leadership seems to be pretty strict. Instant oatmeal, and I guess the specific flavor, is pretty widely available. Like, I, yeah. I could buy it at a CVS or what, like, you can buy that kind of stuff everywhere. So if you have Yurks who are not constantly with other Yurks, it would be very easy for them to go into like a Safeway that we know they have um, and just yep. buy it. So is the plan that the Yerks have to have all Yerk staff at all local stores to make sure no other Yerks are buying the they, oatmeal? There's like another book it's in the future so... where they intercept the supply chain. They light a bunch of oat farms on fire. Like who knows? It's very strange. Um, and it seems like it's just, it's so easily available um, and Yerks cannot destroy all oatmeal. So. Well, so then we, we also learn that the addiction destroys both controller and human, right? Because yes. since the Yerk can't leave, the controller just exists with okay. the Yerk still in their head. And it seems like they randomly trade control of the body. I also, the whole time, I have several notes about this. As I was reading through like how they're talking about how the Yerks can never leave and all of this. This is a good time. I mean, not the Animorphs. They're not the people to do this. But like, if they could communicate back with the, the Andalite homeworld or with someone. Somebody needs to make a fucking machine to remove yurks from heads. Because right. if this is the solution. If everybody ate oatmeal and then their yurks are out of control, it seems like if you just had a machine to remove the yurks without hurting the hosts, problem solved. Everyone eats oatmeal. Like, what is the... Uh, why don't they have an, a machine for this? Because it seems like the Andalites would absolutely have. I just wrote a lot of notes about, like, this... Why don't the yurks... Why is there no machine to remove them? Yeah. It's, it's really, uh, I don't know, it feels like a stretch, but, but the thing that, like, bothers me about this, too, is, like, 
fundamentally, what we're talking about is an easy to access drug that an entire civilization now has an addiction problem with, mm-hmm. like that is spreading through their society. That's not good. That's a problem. But this book minimizes it by making it a joke of like, haha, and it's oatmeal. Yeah. And it's like, that's like pretty irrelevant that it is oatmeal and readily available in stores in terms of like the actual thing you're talking about, which is like the kind of horrific statement that like, hey, so this addiction, um, it's a disease and it's going to spread through two societies, destroying both Yerk and Controller in totality for their entire lives. Hooray! Not great. I mean, well, and I, I think we're kind of getting to our next point, which is this, just that the Animorphs end up having a whole debate about do we drug the Yerks or do we not drug the Yerks? Like, what do we do? What's ethical? And it it's is not a, a horrible debate. conversation. It's so it's hard. But I got to really say, bad. I am shocked because I was shocked at how, first of all, how Cassie was on the fence. That was, I was like, wow, because Cassie seems like the one who's got really clear black and white ethical yeah. um, sort of boundaries. And but she was totally tell, on the fence. And Ash was totally a no. Well, yeah. and you can tell Cassie's really affected by what happened at that in the last book. And they, they mention it, how she was the one who wanted um, Mr. Three's twin to be killed. Mm-hmm. It's like she's really had her ethics like shaken. Yeah. And this is definitely the longest conversation they've had so far about ethics, like the most intense. Yeah. So they debate back and forth, like, should we drug the Yerks or not? Because we could also damage the host. Should we do it or not? And what they're basically trying to decide is like, do we find a way to give the oatmeal to the controllers or do we find a way to put the oatmeal in the Yerk pool and probably we'll go that route, but should we do it? Jake makes a really strange analogy to the Civil War that I, I honestly, I'll be super honest. I read it and I was like, I don't follow. I don't actually follow the logic of this argument. And I interpreted it the other way. And so I was like, okay, Jake's making an argument that we should not do this. But then I turned the page and he's like, so we're going to do it. And I'm like, huh? Okay, let me just read it. Here's his analogy. In the Civil War, they were ending slavery. Most of the Southern soldiers who were killed weren't slave owners. They were just guys trying to be brave. Maybe they could have worked out a compromise. Maybe they could have ended the war earlier if the North had agreed to leave some people as slaves. But would that have been right? No. So the war had to go on till everyone was free. Okay, that analogy says to me, so we can't sacrifice the people who are not free, i.e. the hosts. Like, they, they are the slaves in this analogy, and so therefore, we, the North, I hope, are not going to stop until they're all free. But then he immediately follows that by saying, so yeah, we're going to drug them. We're going to get them addicted and make sure the Yerks stay in their heads for forever. So I don't follow. Is- well, and, but what they end up deciding to do is not quite that, because what they decide to do is they decide to drug the Yerk pool and not hosts. Right, but... Which is not the same. We also know it's not that it, like, kills them outright the first time. They're still going to go into a host. Like, the same problem still exists. I don't think that we know that. Um, only because it doesn't serve the Yerks to have a bunch of oatmeal-addicted Yerks in bodies running around. Sure. Just because clearly the one who's in george he can't he's not a soldier he can't be used for anything like that's it like that host is first of all that's a host that they can't use and it's um a way that they get found out like if you suddenly have a hundred people in a town screaming about the yerks like 
maybe that's like her mass hysteria, but also that could be something else. Like, let's raise some questions. So it's dangerous for them because they get, could get exposed. It's bad for them as one less host. Uh, and that, and then, and then that's one less year who's willing and able to do whatever stuff. So you so think his me, analogy here is like, so we're going to take out a bunch of the Yerk army pre-host so that those hosts can then be free? I, I don't understand what his argument is at all. It, it okay. doesn't make any sense to me. I was like, I don't know what you're saying. Because it does sound like what he's saying is that we can't, we can't sacrifice hosts. Yeah, it sounds like we can't, we cannot, like we would have ended the war earlier if the North had agreed to leave some people as slaves, but that would not have been right. So... Uh, that, that, that analogy doesn't make, I don't really quite understand what he's trying to say, other than that, yeah, and the more I, um, I have it in front of me right now, the more I read it, the more I'm like, no, I really don't get, like, I, I don't get it at all. I don't follow. It's a strange analogy, and it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't, like, Tobias immediately is like, that's a good example, and I'm like, it's not a good example. It's not, a, I don't understand what the example is. Uh, my next question would be, so what am I, what are you saying? Like, yes, drug them, no, don't drug them, like, clarify what you want, Jake. Yeah. All right, well, so that's that's like one ethical quandary of this book. There's another one on the Yerk side, which is interesting. So once they they make it to the Yerk pool, they're doing battle with Visor 3, which we'll talk about a little bit. Actually, why don't we talk about that battle first, actually? And then we can talk about Visor 3's ethical quandary. That battle but, was pure chaos. Pure chaos. The, it's like, so Axe is being held captive. Rachel is pretending to be a host, and she's just wandering around the facility freely shooting people. Mm -hmm. She shoots five people with a dracon beam and like the implication is that she has like quote unquote set it to stun but mm -hmm. she doesn't really know how they work and she she doesn't seem sure that she knocked them out she might have yep. actually killed them just in cold blood right there she even like frames a guy she shoots a guy and then frames him and is like he shot himself it's very odd she discovers that the yerks are keeping like 200 pounds of oatmeal in a shed in this facility it's like their contraband area and it's like mm -hmm. 50 feet from the yerk pool and they're like no problem we'll take all these barrels of oatmeal throw them in the pool explode the barrels all of them will be drowned in oatmeal uh, i guess that's a strategy i again ethically don't approve of just getting a bunch of people addicted to drugs as a war tactic i don't think that's a good one to win the war because it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to get the yerks to leave okay, by i don't know shit about war really i don't know shit about it me being the crazy liberal pacifist that I am, I'm like, do you need to kill people to win a war? Can you disrupt a supply chain? Can you do something else that just sows chaos rather than right. actually just outright killing upwards of 500 years? I mean, I don't know the answer. It doesn't. No, I know it, you don't. It's a rhetorical question. It seems. <laughs> it seems like that's something they're, they're going to continue to struggle with, only because. I totally understand why their thought would be, well, we have to kill this Yerk pool and we'd rather kill them when they're in the Yerk pool versus in a host. Yeah. Um, like that, that makes a kind that of sense. sense. Not, not in a, like, it's not that it's a good thing, but like, I can see why that is what they feel like they have to do. It is also well, ethically wild. Um, I will tell you the one person who's having no ethical quandaries about it is Visser 3, who's like, yeah, okay. He, none Go at all. It. He he realizes their plan and he just straight up tells them like throw all the oatmeal in the pool. We'll clean it up before, you know, half the pool. There's like maximum 500 yerks are going to be affected, so do it if you want. And he's just like, yeah, 500 dead people? I don't give a shit. I can get more. I really don't care. Buddy, 
that's wasting resources. That's going to go against you in the promotion time. You got to think about stuff like that. If you're trying to be employee of the month, it's not okay. He is so wild. And he, I wonder that it's implied is that he only cares when he's thrown into the yerk pool because then he could like be consuming the oatmeal through his hooves. Yeah. Um, one thing that implies me, we didn't put this in our notes, it's just something that I, I keep on thinking about, is that Andalites are constantly eating um, and, like, <laughs> tasting the ground, which means that, like, if Axe is walking on pavement, he's tasting pavement. It's just, it's wild that he cannot just stop eating. That's um, a very good implication, and I really love it. I just think it's very funny. Yeah, so Visor 3 only starts caring about them throwing the oatmeal in the pool when they throw Visor 3 in the pool. And then he's like, oh, no, oh, no, I've fallen in the pool. It's very hard to get out. I don't know why it's hard to get out, but for whatever reason it is. And he's like, I can't do it. And then they blow up the oatmeal. And presumably everything's fine. Like nothing really happens to Visser 3. Well, he's morphing by the time they blow it up. Yeah, but he's mid-morph. But like, That's you know, true. presumably he makes it out and nothing happens to Visser 3, but 500 Yerks are now addicted to oatmeal. But, but I think what we understand for Visser 3 is that he, like, 500 Yerks is nothing, which... He doesn't care. Like a lot, but whatever. I I laughed a lot reading this book because I was like, there are both parts of this book where I was like, oh, Mr. Three's doing a better job. Parts of the book where I was like, Mr. Three's doing a worse job. Like the McDonald's entrance where they have the the detector with the DNA. I'm like, that's smart. They should have had that before. Um, I honestly, I assume that all of the intelligent stuff that the Yerks do comes from Mr. Three's underlings. Yes, I think probably you're right. None of them are, are his commands, you know? I think you're probably right. He is a terrible boss. Uh, and it, okay, it's one thing to throw all of the people who work for you under the bus. It's different when you do it in front of all of them. Like, you know, yes. the Yerks in the pool probably can't hear him, but all of their friends can. And it's pretty yes. wild, especially because we know that Yerks do things like they um, have partners and they have families and they have siblings and friends. So, like, we know that Yerks have. Uh, bonds between them, like inner inner personal bonds. Yep. So it's pretty wild that he is just like, eh, kill him, whatever. Kill him. Um, I don't care. In front of everyone, and I, I mean, I'm sure that the Yerks all know that this is how Mister Three feels about them. But it's just very funny that he is just like, throw him under the bus. Gladly, I'm on it. Like he's just okay. A, he's a bad boss. B, he's a strange bad guy for this book because he continually shows himself to be so incompetent yet also unbeatable. Like, he he's only unbeatable through, like, coincidence, but he's also so incompetent. It's just, he's a strange bad guy. Yeah. Visir 1 should show up more because Visir 1's actually an interesting bad guy. I want more Visirs. I want to see more of them. Where's 2? Is what uh, I want yeah. to know. Uh, I just, I want to know... If he is this incompetent and he's made it this far, what is Visser 4 like? And what yeah. is Visser 2 like? Like, what, yeah. what are the levels of incompetency uh, they, they have? And how far does Visserhood go? Is there like a Visser 50? I feel like they might have said in another book, uh, my heart says 8, but I don't know if that's true. Your heart says 8? My heart says 8. But 10 feels, I think it's maybe 8. I don't know why I think that. Okay, we'll Google it at some okay. point. I think we have one more thing to talk about before we go on to our study hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about it because the thing, we should talk about this, but I want to reframe the question of who is this book for? Yeah, for a moment I had the tone of like, oh, is this going to be, when we got into the addiction stuff really early, I thought it's going to be kind of like a dare style book. Yeah, Um, like a learning experience for kids about the dangers of addiction. 
Yeah, and just for anybody listening and who maybe is younger than us and didn't grow up with D.A.R.E., I don't think really D.A.R.E. exists the same way it used to, uh, or older than us and didn't grow up with D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. is a program, D.A.R.E. to resist drugs and maybe drinking, I think. I think D.A.R.E. stands for something. Hold on. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, Let's see. But it stands it, for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Yeah, so it was like a program that I think police are somewhat involved with. They are. Um, a police officer came to our school and talked to us about drugs yes. and cigarettes. Yeah, and they have like they have a really distinctive logo, but it was like a, a pretty big thing in like the 2000s and 90s, that kind of like dare style drug education. And a lot of it wasn't, it was a really bad form of drug education that basically was like, if you ever do a drug or drink, you will die. You will die. Instead of talking about like harm reduction things or talking about like drugs in a more nuanced way or recognizing that like you're not if you do drugs you're not a bad person and yeah because it was always available. framed it was always framed like if you do drugs even once you're a criminal the only people who do drugs are criminals who don't deserve anything yeah so it's definitely not a productive way to talk about addiction especially with a group of teens who are definitely going to some of them are going to drink some of them are going to do drugs um i mean and a, a lot of it is based on scare tactics it, I thought this book was going to be kind of dare style only because that is my reference from reference for like the nineties or from when I was young, like that's that kind of drug conversation was really like dare Probably. heavy. Yeah. And this was not what this book was. Um, and it wasn't even really about don't do drugs. It like had nothing about don't do drugs. Other than they kind of made jokes about drugs. Yeah. Um, it just, it was the addiction stuff was all kind of a joke. Yeah, it was except a for joke. that one, the one ethical conversation in the middle. But other than that, it kind of seemed like a joke. Yeah, except that that ethical conversation ended with, I mean, I think it's fine. Let's just give them drugs. Drugs addiction's not really a problem. Like that's how it ended up, and it's like not a good lesson. Who's this book for? Do you think? And because this book was written in '98, I was definitely not old enough at the time to be having conversations about addiction with my parents, like really serious conversations. Like I'm yeah. sure I heard drugs talked about, but like not sure. about. I know that conversation around addiction and like the fact that it's a disease have changed a lot in the past yep. 20, 30 years. So I'm used to seeing addiction talked about as a disease, and like the conversation around it looking like something really specific because of that kind of context. Is that what the I conversation mean, was like in 98? I don't remember because, is, again, I was This eight. is Clinton war on drugs era, isn't it? I think you are right. Hold on, let's see. When was that? Um, ba -ba -ba. That was 1994, crime bill. Yeah. So I think it's also part of this book is that it is born of a really different time. I think if this book was written today, it might, it might be a different tone. Also, just in terms of, like, teens probably have heard more about drugs as an addiction, or addiction as a disease versus, yeah. depending on where you go to school, I'm sure. But, like, yeah, totally. it is more likely they've heard that kind of rhetoric versus just dare-style rhetoric. You want to talk about that last point you have? Yeah, we don't have to talk about it for that long, but it really, really upset me. Uh, so the way this book ends is... Rachel, after they have this whole battle, she's like, oh, I went home, but I also stopped somewhere along the way. And then what it turns out she did is she went to the mental health care facility. You know, the guy had expressed, George had expressed to her that he had felt sad that he was stuck there. And we don't know a lot about his family situation, or like why he's there versus somewhere else, or like what the facility is like. We know, we know nothing else about the conditions that he's living in. To go and break him out in her grizzly bear form, and just telling him to like go be free, don't hurt himself again. And then 
she says, this is the exact thing she says, um, and by the way, if you ever see some poor, mad, deranged gentleman wandering the streets and raving about the things that live in his head, well, if you can handle it, give the man your spare change. That upset me so much. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks so hard for so many reasons. <laughs> Go just, ahead. Let's hear him. So first of all, we don't know a lot about the facility that he's in or about his time situation or what's going on, but how is homelessness? And like, she clearly thinks that he is just like unable to take care of himself, that he will just be living on the streets and asking for change. How is that better? And then the other thing is that she actually has a place that she could send him to, that it's safe, that people there know what's going on with him, that it wouldn't be a surprise. And that is called the Horfbizier hideaway. Yep. Um, I don't know why nobody said, you know what, maybe we should break him out, but we should like send him to there. And that would have been a great way to bring back the Horfbizier, um, give them a thing to do that's helpful, yep. but isn't fighting. Like it's a healing thing that they can do, be a great role for them. And would not mean that this man was living like on the street with no access to resources. Um, his family who, who maybe loves him, I, we don't know worried that he's missing they don't know where he is um like that's such a horrible destructive situation i do think it's a sign of rachel being impulsive yeah but man like, I you're sad it. i'll fix it i hate it i, I hate this okay ending. i got another reason to hate it this is um the simplistic empathy mm-hmm. of like ah a homeless person give them some spare change and that's all you need to do no but Rachel decides. I know it's just meant to be like, it's the last line in the book. It's meant right. to just be like a little wrap up. That's all it is. On top of all of the other shitty messages of this book, I didn't like that one either. It feels a lot to me like the same kind, not the same thing, but the same kind of like empathy and like trying to fix stuff um, that made them do the Rainforest Cafe I was going to say. Yes. Where like, yes, yes. It's 13 year old activism. Yeah. Like, like, a, like a kid is like, well, that's better, but it's, it's not, and I think maybe that some of this is symptomatic. They are young, and they haven't had the opportunity to fully think out some of these consequences. But like, it's pretty horrific as an adult. And I would hope that if somebody read this with some of the child relatives, they would talk to me like this: someone losing all access to all of their resources doesn't sound like he has any access to his own money. Is not necessarily a better situation. And like, maybe yeah. the problem is that he doesn't like the facility he's in, and he feels cut off from his family. Like, like they're. Those are solutions that can be figured out. They are also not solutions that Rachel can really be involved in. Like his situation is really sad, but Rachel is not a professional who can help him. Um, And she's not a mediator that can like work things with his family. Like there are people who could help him and it doesn't need to be Rachel. And in fact, maybe it's better that it's not Rachel because Rachel's solutions aren't able to take into account. Like, I mean, her solution is turn into a bear, tear down a wall and scream at someone to run away. Now he has no access to any kind of care, reliable food, um things like access to like a bathroom that's gone now and most cities in america do not have good resources people who are uh living who are homeless and who also uh, have mental health needs yep so this sucks it made me so sad it ended the book on such a sad sad note and i don't think it's supposed to i don't think it's supposed to either um terrible yeah hate that oh rachel what was your overall vibes on this book? Um, you know, we've had some really kind of fun, chaotic books recently. 
Um, this one felt like a real downturn. I also think the one before it felt like a real downturn. It made me wonder if what's happening in general in the books now is like just getting a lot darker because this one just felt so dark. Um, Super dark. Yeah. Like depressing. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Not a fun in- read, you know? No. Like the, I miss Cassie in the horse book. <laughs> yeah. Bring me back to the horse vibes, you know? That or, was very Or fun. the animal janitors from attacking AOL headquarters. That's yeah. a fun read. Um, but I feel like this book and the book before it were both pretty dark. Um, and even, yeah, I don't know. These are just, we've had some darker books. They're I heavy, yeah. If the series as a whole is getting darker, because it kind of feels like it is. Shit, we're only like two-fifths of the way through. I know. It's just that they're, I think it's part of it that they're experiencing more trauma, like more stuff is happening. How, but it keeps escalating. Like, how much worse is this going to get? Natalie, I'm afraid someone's going to die in the next, like, 10 books. I would not be surprised, to be honest. Who do you think it's going to be? Tom. Tom? I was wondering if it would be one of the main gang. I, I feel like before one of the main gang dies, it's gonna be relative. That's a weird, that was like phonetically a strange thing to say. I think it's going to be a relative before one of them dies. Okay, I'll, I'll be honest. I hope it's Tom because I don't want it to be um, who, I don't if anybody in Cassie's family dies, we're canceling oh, no. the podcast. No, that's over. They are the most wholesome people in the book, and yeah. I, I cannot have this book without them. And I think Jake's mom. I think I like Jake's mom in the last book. Yeah, yeah. And I Marco's like dad too. can't die. I would be very upset if Marco's dad died. Rachel's um, whole family at this point, I'm like, ugh. Rachel's parents are a mess. Her I'm sisters are, they're siblings. I am I am voting for Tom. I would like I think if someone's in a well, go, I don't it should want be Tom. Tom to die. I just think he's the most likely one because Jake is the leader and already they've been setting up this like huge emotional attachment to Jake trying to save Tom. And I kind of think if Tom's gonna die, it's gonna be something kind of heroic. Yes. Yeah. Uh yeah, okay. well, we'll see. Let's go to study hall. All right. Okay, study hall this time. This book was so heavy. We're keeping it really light. We're going to have history class and then we're going to call it a day. The history class today is 90s. Yes. Um, So this book started with some of the most 90s references possible. So they, the whole thing starts with like, they're not really clear what it is, but like a show at a Planet Hollywood. Natalie, do you know what Planet Hollywood is? I think it's a restaurant, right? Yeah, it's a restaurant chain. that It still exists today, but I think it was bigger in the 90s. Um, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, is like a chief investor in it. I'm looking up like their menu and stuff. Well, my understanding, and I've never been to one, I don't think we have one here, um, is that it is similar to um, like a Hard Rock Cafe kind of thing. Like it's like a movie-themed restaurant. Um, and I, again, I think- Their website- that- their website says in all caps, let there be fame. Yeah, I think they were more prevalent in the 90s. But like this whole scene is just full, 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 full of like 90s actors uh, doing 90s things. Like they talk about, um, like when they're trying to talk about when, whether or not they should go to this thing. Here's some of the things they talk about they're going to see. Um, Axe is going to be exposed to Bruce Willis playing a harmonica. Uh, there's going to be a Ralph Lauren fashion show. There's going to see famous people like Bruce and Demi. So it's Bruce Willis and Demi Moore. So this is before Demi Moore and Bruce Willis got divorced. And um, she got married to Ashton Kutcher. Also, the way they get uh, Jake to want to go is that someone that they call uh, Mr. O'Neill is going to be there. A Mr. Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, it's so funny. I think they also mentioned Whoopi Goldberg being there. 
but why are they all there? Why would celebrities go to a Planet Hollywood, which as far as I can tell, seems like a Hollywood-themed TGI Fridays? So I think that Arnold Schwarzenegger is an investor, and I think maybe Whoopi Goldberg is too. I think some people they mentioned in this thing are investors. But okay, what this implies to me is that where the Animorphs live is actually a big city. Yeah, right? But like, where did we is, say the Bush Gardens was in Virginia? This island is in Virginia only because there is no um, Planet Hollywood. Although there was in the 90s. It's in Williamsburg, Virginia. Williamsburg oh. is is a city, right? Oh, is it? I don't know. Is there one? I didn't know there was one in Virginia. No, no, no. Um, remember last episode we were talking oh, about Maddie. Yeah, she yeah. was saying Bush Gardens. And we were saying, oh, that's Williamsburg, Virginia. And so now I'm wondering if there's one like in that area. I'm, look- I'm looking. Don't worry, I'm doing the investigation. Some other um, fun 90s, also John Goodman there. What? Which, again, I love John Goodman. I think he's a fun actor. It's just such a strange, it's just a strange set of actors and actresses there doing, I don't know what. All right, here's clues. Let me tell you where Planet Hollywood restaurants are. Uh, Malta, Paris, London, New York, Las Vegas, LAX and Orlando. Let me also tell you that there is a Bush Gardens in Florida. So maybe they're in Florida? Maybe. The Bush Gardens in Florida is in Tampa. How far away is Tampa from Orlando? It's an hour away. Maybe. Here is another, like, every time I'm reading through it right now, and every time I look at it, I just laugh because there's more. 90s content um but okay here's what we know about this event is that it is a concert because bruce willis was playing harmonica um and there's also a fashion show from ralph lauren it's so strange but okay sorry is it is it ralph lauren yes is that how that's pronounced that's how i always said it i'm not a fancy person you're fancier than me so that's cool I don't know. I'm sure someone who's listening to this. You know what? Maddie's probably listening to this and Maddie's probably screaming at us how to say it. (laughs) She is screaming. Maddie, if you hear this, you should text us and tell us. It's just very funny. Nope, sorry. Continue. So their whole thing is like, oh, we're going to show and like show this to Axe so Axe can like learn 90s culture. But later when they're at the mental health care facility, the culture that he remembers is Gilligan's Island, which is not from the 90s even at all. And I wish to know- I wish to know how Axe learned about Gilligan's Island because that's a really specific kind of culture that why would these teens listen or like watch Gilligan's Island? I agree. How does he know about Gilligan's Island when they are clearly only introducing like Bruce Willis and Demi Moore? All of the 90s references in all of these books make me just scratch my head. It's, I really, you know what? I would say this is one of my favorite 90s scenes aside from when they go to the music festival with Alanis Morissette and Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I, um, I truly love how 90s these books are. Let me tell you some Sherlock Holmes thing I just did. Okay. So, Bush Gardens, Tampa, Florida, Planet Hollywood, Orlando, Florida. Those places are about 80 miles apart from each other. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's like an hour by car. How would the Animorphs get there, right? birds as we know they show up at planet hollywood in bird shape right okay mm-hmm. tobias is a red-tailed hawk right mm-hmm. red-tailed hawks can go 120 miles per hour which means they could easily fly from tampa to orlando in an hour or less 
It'd be evidence of stacking up. I am putting forth a theory that Florida is where they are. The only problem is the Safeway doesn't align with that. Well, this is also assuming that gardens refers to bush gardens when it may not. I agree, but I love that theory and I want it to be true. Okay. Because they, they reference so many other things like Planet Hollywood and the Clearly Rainforest Cafe. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I'll just keep reading and see if they mention it at any point. I am hopefully will give us more evidence that will like clue us in better. Okay, I'm keeping that. Or we'll get to the Florida. end of the books and then we will not have to worry about spoilers anymore and then we can go online and see if anyone else figured this out better than we have. Totally. One of those two things will oh, happen. I'm excited. I'm excited. This is my favorite mystery of it, is trying to triangulate their location. Well, I hope you all enjoyed hearing about the 90s and hearing me tip-tap typing in the background while I try to Sherlock Holmes my way through this. Um, I think that's it, right? That's I it think for so. All right, um, well. Is it time for us to talk about our homework? Yeah, let's do it. You want to read the back okay, of the book? Yes. So our next book is called The Decision. This is an axe book that has axe turning into a mosquito. The cover um, is horrendous. It's pretty scary. Uh, I already don't want to look at a mosquito. Um, and the front of the book has a little tagline. Hold on, let me look at it. Uh, it says, change a little, change a lot, just change. Yuck. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, okay, so here's what the back of the book says. Axe and the Animorphs are about to have a huge problem. It starts when they, when they decide to morph mosquitoes in order to slip by some unsuspecting yurks. It ends with them stuck in zero space with no idea how they got there, no way to get back to Earth, dot, 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 and no oxygen. Luckily, an Andalite scout ship finds them before it's too late, but now Axe is finally with his own people, and he doesn't know if he ever wants to go back to Earth. Bum, bum, bum! I love Z-Space. So excited to learn more about Z-Space. Well, we're going to learn more. So, it's going to be great. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, Where can they find us? They can find us on Instagram at the Book Report Pod and on Facebook at the Book Report. And if they need to email us, you can email us at weloveanimorphs at gmail.com. If you are going to send us some spoilers, don't. But if you feel like you have to, just put spoilers in the tagline so that we can uh, make sure someone else reads it and tell us what we need to know. What else? Oh, and you can review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us give us five stars tell us nice things about us if you have a good review we'll read it on the podcast um and i think that's it i think that's it all right well i guess we'll see you next week i guess we won't we won't see you we'll you'll hear us next week when we talk about the next book bye-bye bye Okay, now we're recording. Okay, great. Your request to speak to my manager is denied. <laughs>